Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Teach, our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Molly Hoiblein, joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Kurzanovskaya. On tonight's episode, we will discuss teaching critical appraisal of the literature with our Curbsiders expert, Dr. Rahul Ganatra. Before we get started with that, Ira, will you remind the audience what we do on this show? Sure, Molly. We are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. And a reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. And our special guest for tonight is Dr. Rahul Ganatra, a Curbsiders regular contributor. Dr. Rahul Ganatra is an internist practicing inpatient and outpatient medicine at the VA Boston Healthcare System, where he is also the faculty mentor for the House Staff Journal Club. He earned his MD MPH from Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine and completed his residency training at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. In addition to serving as the Curbsiders Critical Appraisal Correspondent, he is an associate editor for the New England Journal of Medicine's Journal Watch General Medicine Series. Welcome, Rahul. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. Well, because you are our regular um, contributor, we won't do the getting to know you questions, but I thought it would be great if we have some picks of the week. Rahul, do you want to head us off? Yes. So I finally have a pick of the week. I feel like I'm always kind of scratching my head and uh, feeling a little jealous about what a life everyone else has. Um, but this week, I actually have something. So I had a chance to play the prototype of a medical game recently that I think is going to be a big thing. Uh, you may have seen mention of it on Twitter. It's called Critical Care, the game. Uh, and this was a game that was designed by Lakshman Swami, who's a critical care doctor in Boston. And it's a cooperative game that's kind of similar to Pandemic, if you've ever played that, in the sense that you're all working together. It's really geared towards a non-medical audience, but I think medical people will also have a good time playing it. It's really fun. The uh, cards kind of deal damage to a panel of patients that you're caring for in an intensive care unit, and you have to work together to build your skills and uh, save the patients. And uh, it's a lot of great teaching in there. It's on Kickstarter right now. I think by the time this airs, it will probably uh, be past the funding stage, but um, look for it in stores. It's going to be really cool. I love that. That is like one of the nerdiest games I've ever heard of, and <laughs> it sounds perfect for a medical audience. Is it kind of like, um, talking about end of life topics or it's just fun stuff in the ICU. So it they put a lot of effort into uh not only making sure that the medical teaching made sense but also addressing kind of a wrap around of issues that you encounter uh, caring for patients in the ICU. There's health equity, there's end of life issues, there's counseling family members, and then there's also, you know, uh, complications that happen like sepsis and ARDS and pneumonia. So it really contains kind of a, a exciting um, family of problems that can happen in the ICU, and uh, there's some good teaching in there too. I love that. So you're not just calculating the dose of vancomycin, you're also talking about what vancomycin is treating for that particular patient. I can confirm there are no dose calculations required. 
<laughs> wow. This game definitely has my support right now. Yeah, it's going to be cool. There's there's probably a website that uh, I, I'm going to have to apologize to Lakshman for not knowing, but you can find it on, on Twitter. It's Critical Care of the Game, and uh, it should be coming soon to a store near you. Awesome. Are you ready to have fun? Sure. I'm not sure if it's a faux pas to share another podcast on a podcast. However, a friend recently recommended uh, Ali Ward's podcast called The Ologies. And the episode that I listened to was on eudaimonology, which is the study of happiness with Lori Santos, who also has a podcast, The Happiness Lab. So apparently it's like a meta podcast on podcasts. But she basically talks about, you know, what is happiness? How do our circumstances affect it? Why do certain words like be positive and gratitude feel so cringy? And she goes through things that are uh, that she teaches actually in her classes at Yale. And uh, it's super interesting to hear um, the science behind uh, the study of human happiness and what their research has showed. So look out for that. Very cool. Um, since since we're on the podcast theme, I will go with um, the so the New York Times Daily podcast has these great ones on the weekends that are non news related and just kind of longer piece stories about whatever topic happens to be up. And a month or two ago, they had one about Weird Al Yankovic and just kind of his his process and his history and what kind of a person he is. And it was just a very cool listen. So I'd recommend go checking that out. Molly, that's incredible. That takes me to both a deep, dark, and also hilarious part of my past. So that's uh-huh. amazing. <laughs> I love that. It, well, my 10-year-old son is a big fan. So <laughs> I, I'm also a little terrified realizing that, that I'm sure there are some of our listeners who do not know who Weird Al Yankovic is. And that is the oldest I have felt today. <laughs> <laughs> I think he is still making new stuff. So I, I think he's I think he's still relevant. Still relevant. <laughs> Therefore, we are still relevant, exactly. I think, is the exactly. actual connection here. Yeah. If Weird Al is relevant, then gosh darn it, so are we. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> and Rahul, I have to ask, do you have a fun animal fact for us? A fun animal fact? Okay, yes, I do, actually. So I was recently talking with my father-in-law, who is a veterinarian, and somehow we got on the topic of pregnancy testing. And it turns out that up until the 50s or 60s in the United States, there was a common way to diagnose pregnancy in women, which did not involve a pregnancy test because the lateral flow immunoassay wasn't yet developed. Have you guys heard the expression uh, to kill the rabbit before to indicate that someone's pregnant? Have you heard that? No. I had never heard this either. Sounds dark. <laughs> it, so it is dark. So what they used to do before the, the 60s was uh, to to confirm pregnancy in a woman, they would take a sample of urine and inject it into a rabbit because apparently rabbit ovaries are like primed to ovulate. And so the amount of HCG in the urine of a pregnant woman is enough to trigger uh, ovulation in the rabbit ovaries. And so what they would do is they would inject the urine and then two days later, they would kill the rabbit and look at the ovaries under the microscope. (laughs) And if you saw changes consistent with ovulation, you knew that the the woman was pregnant. And the the guy who developed the test uh, was quoted in a New York Times article that I found after after Googling this as saying, um, yeah, it's pretty accurate. The only more accurate thing to do is just wait nine months. (laughs) Oh is this gosh. something you'd like show up at your PCP office and they have like a little rabbit hutch in the back? And- That's what my wife asked. She said, so did hospitals back then just have like a supply of rabbits for this kind of thing? Uh, I, I have no idea how this worked. I, I am, I'm only at the beginning of that rabbit hole, pun not intended. So I, I need to nice, spend more nice. time reading about it. 
I think I'm not going to spend much time reading about that. That's the, <laughs> that was quite the visual and, um, and the fact learned. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Awesome. Well, let's jump into our topic today. Um, we're going to be talking about journal club and and uh, critically appraising the literature. And I think we're going to cover a lot of super valuable and interesting pearls about how to run a good journal club and how to make it fun and make it effective and really get everyone engaged. Um, so Ira, do you want to kick us off with a case? Sure. So you are uh, a second year, or maybe I'll say I am a second year resident on the first ambulatory block of my uh, medicine second year. And I'm asked to choose some articles and run the residency's first journal club of this academic year. But Rahul, I'm so worried about picking not only an interesting and digestible article, but also coordinating and directing the journal club itself when I just finished my intern year, let's say last week. So I guess, Rahul, if you don't mind kind of fleshing out to us how this resonance is feeling, or maybe I can tell you how I'm feeling, and uh, why so many of us have this reaction to Journal Club. Oof, that's a lot of pressure you've described. The first Journal Club of the academic year, and not only coordinating and directing the Journal Club, but you are just coming off what was probably a busy intern year. So of course, you have uh, had other things on your mind than preparing the perfect Journal Club discussion. So I really identify with people who feel uh, a sense of despair uh, when put in this situation. And I think that we as a medical educational system have not done the best job of preparing uh, medical students and residents and attendings for that matter uh, to really feel as comfortable with critical appraisal as we do with clinical decision making. In my opinion, journal clubs uh, go off the rails when the people who organize the journal clubs, which is often faculty or uh, uh, curriculum leaders um, like you all, um, if we don't give learners enough guidance on article selection and guidance on how to critically appraise an article, that is going to be kind of a, a setup for a discussion that no one feels good about. And I talk with residents and uh, in interns and medical students about conferences quite a lot. Uh, my role at Cashlack Northeast, I, I come into contact with lots of uh, students and residents. And pretty universally, Journal Club is everyone's least favorite conference. And uh, everyone knows I love it. No one even has any reservations about telling me <laughs> that, that they all hate it. So um, yeah, I think it's a large part of this is that we just have not done as good of a job uh, formalizing this into um, a process that people are familiar with and can really get behind. And then also, if, if we don't model um, the expectation that learners read an article before coming to discuss it, we kind of then create a, uh, a situation where the, the leader is not prepared, learners are not prepared, and uh, it's, it's a, a recipe for, for a discussion that doesn't go anywhere. I'm so glad you were filling the void today because I absolutely feel unprepared to lead or teach uh, how to run a good journal club. So I'm, I'm really excited for this conversation today. Yeah. How do you think about the the goal? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, say I, no, I, I am happy you feel that way because uh, this is one of the, the secret uh, best things about Journal Club, which is that there's nowhere to go but up. It would be pretty hard to do something that is worse than the status quo. It would be hard to do something <laughs> that surprises people with how bad it is. Set the bar low. I like it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> what do you think are the goals of a good Journal Club? Okay. So... The goals are going to vary depending on the specific group of learners who are engaged in the journal club and why they are doing it. 
For example, a group of students might have as their goal to learn critical appraisal skills, whereas a group of residents might be more interested in staying up to date with the current literature. So I will say just as a general recommendation, I think it's really important for whoever is is leading their journal club to define what the goals are broadly, you know, in terms of what they want to accomplish, but also specifically for your group. And this, these, you know, this can be anything. This can be uh, practicing critical appraisal skills. This can be reading classic literature that, you know, we feel like learners should have some familiarity with. Or this can just be a way to have a lively lunchtime discussion with your colleagues about the new hottest thing. So the goals really can be anything. You just have to decide what they are up front. I love that because it feels like there's a developmental kind of context to each of these goals based on which learners you're working with and gets a little bit more complicated when there's the variety of learners. But in general, I love kind of being able to be specific about those, um, you know, general goals, which may seem oxymoronic, but I think is is right here. And I wonder, Rahul, with these goals, can you maybe touch on more specifically what the objectives are for Journal Club? Yeah. So whatever the goal is, everyone has to be on board. So, you know, it's really important to sort of get buy-in from your learners uh, ahead of time. And the objectives uh, of Journal Club, you know, this can be anywhere from things as sort of general as we kind of indicated already, reading classic literature, staying up to date with new literature, or they can be things that are really quite specific, uh, like deliverables for learners. And by that, I mean things as tangible as letters to the editor or tutorials. I've actually had... uh, two opportunities now to write letters to the editor based on papers that learners have brought up to discuss at uh, journal clubs. And I've submitted many more than have been uh, accepted, as is uh, usual in academic medicine. But, um, you know, I've, I've had a few letters published in the New England Journal of Medicine this way. And so it really is an accessible way to, to show learners how to engage in the scientific discourse. So the objectives can be uh, broad, like, you know, just obtaining practice or staying current, or they can be really specific, like producing uh, tangible uh, uh, pieces of learning. Yes. That, that, <laughs> I was going to say, that feels that feels very exciting. I mean, the the idea of, of really making it your local conversation, but then also putting it in the context of a, a broader, um, you know, conversation either online or in print. And, and really, I think that would be very appealing to many of our learners to, to be able to see that direct outcome. Yeah. And I'll also add that the, the COVID-19 pandemic really kind of uh, brought to the forefront the, the critical importance of, you know, a group of clinicians sitting together and discussing what we thought of all of the kind of fire hose of literature that was coming out. And I think everyone who was working clinically during 2020 can remember a time when we just didn't have professional society guidelines yet to advise us on how to use some of the repurposed medications uh, that were being uh, used for patients uh, with COVID-19 early on. Um, and I, I still remember sitting with you know the infectious disease and, and general medicine folks at my hospital and uh, talking over the data and, and deciding what we thought about it. So there's another important function of journal clubs um, that's, I think, a little bit more practical and a little bit more tangible than, you know, our education. And that's frankly just deciding what to do uh, before a professional society has really weighed in on whether a a new piece of evidence should change practice. Chances are patients are going to be asking about it. Chances are colleagues are going to be aware of it. So it's a a very uh, practical thing uh, as well. 
I love that, Rahul, because you really kind of nail hit the nail on the head in terms of, you know, when we think about med ed and writing objectives for a session, kind of saying as a result of participating in Journal Club, a learner will be able to independently review a new article and decide if that should change practice. And I think that really kind of highlights the power of what we're, you know, the session that we're trying to highlight for learners and get people more excited about. Do you have some practical tips of how to get buy-in and ensure that you have a successful journal club? Yeah. Some things that I have seen uh, work well uh, in journal clubs over the years. Learners are worthy of high expectations, in my opinion. So I think it is the right thing to have high expectations for people in a journal club. You got to do that while simultaneously creating a safe place to learn and to express uncertainty. So it's getting buy-in is kind of uh, centered around that right mix of uh, challenging learners and supporting them. So that is uh, that is one thing I will say. The other things that I have found to be successful, you know, I, there's been a lot of effort to try to make journal clubs something that doesn't require work ahead of time. And I have yet to see a model like that that I have, have thought works well. So, um, you know, I, I welcome being uh, uh, people bringing things to my attention that uh, don't require this, but it is my opinion today that you got to send the paper out ahead of time and you have to have your learners, um, you have to communicate the expectation that they read it. Other things that I think are helpful for um, modeling how to uh, critically praise the literature and get buy-in, I think showing learners how to handle scientific uncertainty in a healthy way is a really important function of Journal Club. I see really often uh, people leading journal clubs fall into this kind of position of feeling like they need to defend the scientific integrity of whatever they're talking about. And that's totally not the case. And furthermore, no one expects you to be a content expert because you're you're this new junior resident. You just finished intern year. Of course, you're not a content expert. But that doesn't mean that you know we can't all um, show each other how to ask questions and benefit from um, each other's perspective on something that is, is going to be important for, for patient care. So I think modeling um, how to handle uncertainty and how to have a lead a discussion in, in a way that doesn't require you to sort of defend uh, the scientific content of a paper. Um, and then also just making them them fun and useful. Um, and, uh, you know, I, in my journal clubs, I really like to push learners to just say in words what a study is asking and what the findings are. Because, um, you know, I'm I'm kind of unsatisfied in a clinical interaction if I see my learners using too much jargon and, you know, talking at a level that is not uh, creating a connection with the patient. And I feel the same way about a journal club. I feel like we have to all be able to talk about what uh, a piece of literature is doing in a way that we can all understand. Rahul, I think that's really clear and really kind of sets up the uh, practical side of journal club. And I wonder if we go back to the case and maybe extend it a little bit to say that I am one of, let's say, 15 residents who are going to be at this journal club with three faculty as well. And I'm asked to choose just one article specifically for that journal club. I wonder how you would advise me along the lines of choosing that article and kind of is there a particular framework you follow or kind of a suggestion for that starting um, that choice? Yeah. I mean, uh, having three faculty members in the journal club uh, will pose its own risk. I, I often find that uh, managing attendings and faculty uh, is, you know, as much of takes as much planning as uh, as uh, planning your discussion for your learners. Because, you know, people who come to journal club are really excited about this stuff. So you're going to have people who who have things they want to say and points they want to make. 
So I will just say, thinking about the composition of your journal club, really valuable. Is this a group of mixed learners, you know, medical students, house staff, faculty, or is this people in, you know, a close um, pod group of just your colleagues that you maybe have, you know, a closer relationship with? So thinking about what are the, what is the composition of the journal club and the, the relationships between the participants is really important. Um, as far as choosing an article for journal club, um, so medical education types love a th good theoretical framework. So I am just over the moon to have a theoretical framework to advise learners for choosing articles for journal club. So this is something that is based on Malcolm Knowles, who uh, was an educator who uh, did a lot of work uh, laying the groundwork for adult learning theory um, in the earlier part of the 19th century. And he developed this concept called uh, andragogy, which is not a word that rolls off the tongue, but it's meant to be in contrast to pedagogy. Um, so to, to sort of indicate adult learning as opposed to child learning. And he developed these four principles that I think can kind of guide article selection. So the first principle is that articles, uh, ex or excuse me, adults need to be involved in the planning of their learning. And to me, that really speaks to you need learners to buy in to the educational plan you have. And we've already spent a little bit of time talking about that. The second principle is that experience, including mistakes, are what provide the basis for learning. And so this tells me that it's really important to choose papers addressing things that our learners have experience with. And by this, I mean the common things, CHF, AKI, diabetes, hypertension. I mean, think about the times you legitimately didn't know what to do for a patient in a common situation. And in my opinion, those are kind of the best clinical questions to address. The third principle is that adults are most interested in learning things with immediate and direct relevance to their job. And so this uh, principle guides me to, you know, you should be choosing papers relevant to a decision that the learners actually have to make. Choosing a paper that's a phase three trial of a biologic that is sixth line for a rare cancer is going to be less useful than uh, choosing a paper that might inform, inform what type of uh, IV fluid you use in a patient who's hypovolemic, because that's a decision that learners, particularly how staff, have to make often. And then the fourth principle is that adult learning is often problem-oriented rather than content-oriented. And so I advise learners to, you should always think about connecting your discussion of a paper back to some concrete action. Um, so I, I like to end journal clubs with something like, you know, given this information, given your assessment of the overall strengths and weaknesses of this paper, what should we do for this patient in front of us? So it doesn't have to be as contrived as, you know, like making up a clinical vignette or scenario, but I think connecting uh, what you are discussing to a real problem that you have to solve in real life is really key. I think that's a great framework to keep it focused on what's important to us in the practice of medicine and help help learners feel like they don't need to choose some bizarre off-the-cuff, you know, uh, unrelated article and, and really keep it focused on what we care about. How do you try to make sure that an article is credible or trustworthy? Do you, does it need to be peer-reviewed? Are open access journals okay? Yeah, uh, I have, and many others have been kind of disappointed over the past year or two to learn just how few things there are that really guarantee the integrity uh, of a scientific manuscript. And it's kind of uh, useful if you can get to this place to think of your journal club as kind of like a, a form of peer review. 
And I, I say this because honestly, there really are no features of a paper or of a journal that make uh, that make what you're reading more likely to be true. You know, as physicians, we have to deal with uncertainty all the time. But as learners uh, practicing critical appraisal, you have to learn how to balance uh, objective skepticism with the need to sort of actually do something at the end of the day. Um, and so peer review is really important as a sort of um, tool to increase the reliability of the scientific literature, but it is by no means perfect. Open access journals, I think, are are great. I think they fill an important niche in academia, and I don't really apply any more scrutiny or less scrutiny to articles in those journals uh, that re- uh, than journals that require a subscription. And I'll just point out that the the three most highly cited retracted papers of all time, you can look this up on uh, Retraction Watch is a website that keeps track of all this. Um, the three most highly cited retracted papers were published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Lancet, and Science. So that to me, that also that parable also makes the case for why critical appraisal is so important. We can't really rely on impact factor or prestige um, to to kind of do that work for us. I really appreciate your framing of Journal Club as a form of peer review, that we're kind of doing this all together, and we have a chance to review the content and really wrestle with the uncertainty ourselves. And um, I also really like the point of kind of you have to both balance being skeptical and knowing that something might need to be done at the end of this conversation, like we might actually have to change our practice. And it just reminds me of that uh, common phrase, like don't just do something, uh, or excuse me, don't just stand there, do something. But in this case, it's like, don't just do something, stand there and critically appraise this piece of literature in front of you. And I just really like how you're how you're creating a you know psychologically safe place to do that, or at least I feel that way right now, Rahul. If you were a uh, you know leader of our journal club, well, I'm very glad, and I should I should be totally honest and say you know I am wrong a lot, and I have you know read papers and thought, okay, this is what I think, and you know after talking with colleagues, I thought, oh, you know I, I hadn't really weighed uh, that source of bias highly enough, and I've now had a conversation with somebody who has persuaded me and uh, I've I've changed what I think. So it's a it's a really cool thing to be able to be persuaded. Uh, I, I feel like the opportunities to really change your mind are kind of shrink as you get older. So that it's another useful thing of Journal Club is I find it a, a safe place to, to be wrong. I think that curiosity and that kind of curious humility will take you far and will take all of us far as we engage in journal clubs. And I wonder if we were returning to the case and kind of having to pick a a recent article, let's say that I have decided to review a recent publication in JAMA on disparities in therapy initiation for atrial fibrillation. I wonder by Essien et al. And I just wonder how you would suggest that I go about applying both the framework you mentioned above and specifically appraising this particular piece of literature. Okay, great. So you have chosen a paper that, you know, kind of ticks all the boxes as far as uh, something that I think makes a, a good choice for Journal Club. Atrial fibrillation is the most common arrhythmia. It's something that your learners will definitely have experience treating. And uh, something like health equity is a topic that is really broadly uh, relevant, is far-reaching. Um, you know, the vast majority of our learners are going to be taking care of patients from diverse backgrounds. Um, and so it's really important to think about the equity of the care that we are providing. So this is something that is going to touch everybody in some way. So check as far as relevance. Now, as far as uh, an, an approach to appraising this article, um, 
one uh, framework that I have recommended uh, that uh, my chief residents use when leading their journal clubs is to just start by getting everybody on the same page. You're going to set high expectations and tell people they got to read, but invariably, you know, people will be busy. Some people will have clinical emergencies and patient care needs that, you know, sort of preclude that. And you may, you know, have people who have joined the rotation you didn't know about. So there will be the occasional learner who hasn't read. Um, so an important way to sort of get everyone on the same page with what a paper says uh, before you start appraising it. Um, I think there are three questions that, you know, with some exceptions for different study designs, um, will get you pretty far. And people will have learned other frameworks for this kind of thing. Um, PICO is a common one, uh, Population Intervention Comparison Outcome. That's a great framework. Um, I have nothing against PICO. So I think um, what I what I usually advise um, learners to do is ask these questions at the very beginning. Number one, what was the basic scientific question that the study sought to answer? Number two, if there was a comparison made, how were the comparison groups defined? And then number three, what were the, the top line main findings of the paper? If you can get all learners on the same page with those three questions, then you really have the sort of basic ingredients to build a uh, better uh, and more elaborate critical appraisal pizza. So this is like the crust and the dough, and you are now going to add all the delicious toppings that is uh, the uh, sources of chance and bias that people are going to identify in your conversation. So you need some kind of base layer, some some crust on which to, to build the rest of it. And, you know, there are other important questions to ask, like who is included, who is excluded, you know, the um, details of the methods and how that could introduce, you know, a sort of chance or bias in either direction. Um, these are important things. They're often going to be more tailored to the uh, individual study, and so you know it's it's okay if your if your baseline uh, crust includes more than just those three things. But I think that's a good starting point. So once everyone is on the same page with the basics of what the of what the paper says, then I encourage learners to think about identifying um, sources of chance and sources of bias. And what I mean by chance is basically random variation, okay? So variation that has more to do with precision and lack of precision than a source of error in a specific direction. So sources of chance and then sources of bias. And bias includes things like confounding, things that could um, you know, bias a study towards a positive finding in the absence of there being a real relationship between an exposure and an outcome. So I encourage learners to look for sources of chance and sources of bias. And then once you have identified those sources, to weave them together into kind of a narrative, just like we do for clinical reasoning, think about in which direction the sources of chance you identify and the sources of bias you identify are going to push the results. And there's really only two directions you can go. Are you going to identify something that has uh, created um, a push towards underestimation of an effect? more likely to have a null finding uh, because you've underestimated uh, a difference or an effect size? Or are you identifying something that is uh, pushing towards a difference, something that is going to overestimate the difference between two things? So using this framework, um, I, I, I try to push learners to organize the uh, criticisms that that people are often quite skilled at, uh, at a, or the, the problems that people are often quite skilled at identifying. Uh, I, I push learners to uh, turn those into a comprehensive assessment uh, and decide what to do with the results of the paper. 
So if I was to apply this to um, this uh, paper by uh, Dr. Essien and colleagues, so I would say um, for the first uh, three questions, what was the basic question that the study sought to answer? They wanted to um, uh, report on whether there were differences in anticoagulation prescribing for new diagnoses of atrial fibrillation depending on whether patients were uh, or across different uh, race and ethnicity backgrounds. And they had five exposure categories. So what was the basic study question? Are there differences in uh, anticoagulation uh, prescribing behaviors uh, for new atrial fibrillation depending on race? How are the comparison groups defined? Well, the comparison, uh, the reference category was patients who uh, were identified in the, in the electronic medical record uh, of this uh, large VA database as white. And the four comparisons were um, patients who were identified as uh, Black, Hispanic, Asian, and then American Indian and Alaska Native. So five comparison categories. And then what were the main top-line findings? Well, the authors found that um, Black patients, uh, the, the likelihood of initiating any anticoagulation therapy among Black patients was lower compared with white patients. And among those patients who uh, did initiate anticoagulation, Black patients were less likely than white patients to be started on a direct-acting oral anticoagulant as opposed to warfarin. So you can, you can, if you've read the paper, you know I've left a lot out of there. There's a lot more about the study size and the population and who is included and excluded. But the basic top-line findings that somebody who's just walked into the room need to, uh, needs to be aware of in order to participate in our conversation, uh, in my opinion, is, is some version of that. Okay, so we've talked about um, the first three steps. I think um, uh, the sources of chance and, and bias are um, are something that I would uh, invite uh, listeners to actually read this paper and then uh, respond uh, with their own thoughts uh, on Twitter, because I think it would be a great way to extend uh, participation in this discussion to beyond just uh, our little journal club here. And I, I have my own thoughts, but I would love to hear what others have to say, and we can we can continue the conversation on Twitter. That sounds awesome. I, I think you did a great job making those three questions feel very answerable in the moment. And I could see even if a resident or whoever only had, you know, 10 minutes to review the article before the journal club, that those would be very answerable questions and um, a very practical way just to get things started and, and open up the discussion. So I, I really like starting with those basics. What do you think about using kind of a structured review tool or checklist to kind of keep things on track? Yeah, those can be really valuable. Um, I find that uh, personal preference is often um, the, the most important determinant of whether somebody wants to use a structured checklist. Um, I will never tell a resident not to do that. I will advise learners that you do not feel like you need to be beholden to discuss all of those things. Those are probably structured checklists are, are probably the most useful when you're appraising a paper that is uh, of a design that you maybe are not as familiar with. The thing that I will caution learners against, though relying too heavily on structured checklists, is very often you will end up, after going through a checklist with kind of a grab bag of observations, that does not get you any closer to deciding what you think of a paper. Because the checklist does not by itself show you how to kind of weave those observations into a clear arc or a narrative. Kind of like when you are presenting a patient, uh, you have to synthesize all of the objective data into an assessment and a plan. Uh, and so simply having you know, a structured representation of all of the subjective and objective data is, is not enough. You have to synthesize that. 
So I think checklists can be really useful for uh, reminding learners what kinds of things they should be assessing and what kind of things they should be looking for. But I really think the discussion process and the journal club process needs a little bit more than just a checklist in order to help learners understand how to do the assessment. Thanks, Rahul. I was just wondering, now that we've kind of covered the crust of the pizza, we'll say, like the, I don't know what the verb is, I'm missing it. It's not kneading or spinning the dough, whatever, the knuckling the dough. I don't even remember. It's something about making it a dough. Kneading. Uh, kneading. Is that, I don't know. <laughs> I'm saying, what is the verb? Um, now that we've done that with the pizza and we kind of have gotten everybody on the same page with those three questions that make up the crust, I wonder you know, what happens next after these basics have been covered in the journal club? Yeah, I know I should be focusing on answering this question, but now I'm just thinking about throwing the dough up in the air and spinning it <laughs> because whatever that is called, I think that is what we have done. Yes. <laughs> I think it's the verb is tossing the pizza, by the way, I think maybe, mm. I, I think. I'm we'll glad see. I gave us time or to pizza figure spinning. that out. <laughs> yeah. I'm, go I'm actively Googling and somebody is going to tell us on Twitter that, we, that I was wrong, but I think it's somewhere between those things. Okay. All right. So then the next step in assembling the critical appraisal pizza is, um, so, you know, once you've gotten everyone on the same page with the basics, and, and I should just add, there are many successful ways to do that. You could just have everybody who comes into the room, you could hand them an abstract and say, take two minutes and read this. You could use a visual abstract that journals often produce. You could use a little quick take video that New England Journal of Medicine makes. There's many ways to do that. Okay. So once you kind of have everyone on the same page, um, a really good way to plan your discussion, okay, how to lead learners through the journey of a scientific manuscript so that they can identify those sources of chance and bias. I have found that a good roadmap is to just go through all of the tables and all of the figures and invite learners to just say out loud in English words without any jargon what each of them shows. And as a facilitator, you can plan discussion questions for each of those. And you know, it, it, questions can be as simple as can someone say what figure one shows, or they can be more complex. Like, for example, for a randomized controlled trial, figure one is often what's called a consort diagram, which is um, that diagram that sort of shows the flow of patients uh, who are screened, patients who are eligible, patients who are randomized, and patients who are followed up. You could ask a more complex question, like based on how patients were enrolled in this study, can anyone talk about the potential for selection bias in this trial? So you can invite learners to add their own observations, or you can direct their learning if there is a, a point that you think is really important to understand about a particular manuscript. So just simply going through the tables and figures is a great way to organize your, your questions uh, in order to kind of get learners moving through the major content of the paper. And I should also say, it is totally fine if the discussion just meanders, goes all over the place. Uh, I, I, it is my opinion that a lively meandering discussion is much better than a kind of dull cookie cutter discussion that covers everything that you wanted to. Uh, I'm teaching a course right now uh, with medical students, and uh, I help the medical students prepare their their uh, journal club discussion beforehand. And I recently had uh, a student who did a great job because you know everybody was just you know people couldn't wait to sort of add their observations to the discussion. And af afterwards, the student was a little disappointed that we didn't get through all of these things that we identified beforehand. And I said, no, no, this is the goal: a lively discussion where people just you know, leave wanting more. That's where you want to go with this. That's the skill that everyone uh, needs to develop. And you just help them do that. So that's the goal. That's awesome. I hope we can keep our learners as engaged and 
keep the discussion going as well. But if it is kind of struggling, if people don't seem to be as as ready to talk, what are some ways to help keep it engaged, keep the conversation moving if it does need a little bit more prompting from the facilitator? Yeah. So the art of asking good questions is I hope that you guys will do an episode on just asking good questions because that is something that is such a broad, it, it touches so many areas of medical education and I could stand to learn. Um, I, I'm, I'm a lifelong learner of many things, including the art of, of how to ask a good question. If any of our listeners have guest suggestions, send them in. Yes. So yeah, how to kind of help uh, move things along. So I uh, encourage people who are going to lead journal clubs to have ready um, some discussion questions that you have thought about ahead of time, okay, with the goal in mind of where do you want your learners to go? And by that, I just mean, have you identified sources of chance and bias? And in which direction do you think they influence the results? And how do you want to elicit those from your learners? So taking people on the roadmap through the tables and figures, you know, is is a good physical structure for how to get through a paper. But what do you do if people just sort of aren't biting? If people just are not, if 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 this is just not landing at all? So people are often really uh, happy to volunteer criticisms about things that kind of don't require a lot of thought, like generalizability. That is one that a learner who hasn't read the paper can just walk in halfway through and be like, I don't think the study is generalizable to the target population. So that is something (laughs) that anyone can just sort of say, or or the the ethics of doing a randomized controlled trial. Like, uh, I'm not sure that there uh, is enough uh, equipoise to justify randomization in this case. Okay, so those are two kind of like lazy statements that that anyone can make. Can I just interrupt you for one second, Rahul? Because this reminds me when people are in rounds and they're worried about like not knowing what's on a differential. And I've always told medical students, like you can always say it could be amyloid, it could always be TB, and it could always be HIV. And like if you at least say like those three, you're probably in good like in good shape. Oh, and lupus. Oh, but I yes. feel like you're you're giving us these kind of like things that people can just definitely be able to say and be able to talk about um, yes. in a journal club. Yes. We, we should call this the slacker's guide to journal club because if, <laughs> if, if you just talk about uh, generalizability and ethics, you could kind of show up at any journal club and have something to say. So that, that's not to belittle those things. Like they are important. And, you know, sometimes it is uh, amyloid and TB and lupus simultaneously. But um, so the, the types of questions that you, that you can ask. So when people uh, identify things uh, such as those, concern about generalizability, concern about the ethical basis, just push them a little bit further. With that observation, now make an assessment. In which direction is this going to affect the results? Because identifying a criticism is really not that hard. I mean, that's what checklists are for, right? They help people identify things that uh, either are limitations or things that are, are missing. But what checklists do not do and what a discussion facilitator needs to, to think about doing as far as bringing your learners um, to this higher plane of critical appraisal is pushing them to think, okay, in which direction is that going to matter? Is this going to matter for our interpretation of the results? Because if you can show that any particular observation isn't likely to affect the results, then it's actually not that important. In my mind, we care about how is this paper likely to be wrong? What are the major threats to this conclusion being right? 
And that's what I think the whole purpose of Journal Club is, is to is to basically just, you know, uh, talk to your colleagues and, and practice ways to, to figure out how, how can we be less wrong in taking care of patients? So if, uh, if you've got a group that, you know, people are, are really not biting, uh, encouraging people when you do get those observations or criticisms that, that you might think of as kind of, uh, low hanging fruit or things that are not, you know, particularly insightful, just pushing people a little bit further to ask them to estimate, okay, so in which direction do you think this is going to push things? More likely to see a difference, less likely to see a difference, or is it not going to matter? I really appreciate that framework, Rahul, because you're kind of asking people to say, now what? It's like you've kind of dabbled in, you've put the feelers out for a conclusion relative to or your appraisal, but it's kind of like the secondary layer, the second question of, well, so what? You know, what does this mean for us? Which is really kind of the next step. I guess I wonder when you think about where this journal club has been, because we've had such an insightful conversation. It's lively. It's people are just going all over the place. How do you end up wrapping it up? Or how do you kind of um, bring that lively discussion to somewhat of a close since, you know, most journal clubs, I know much to your regret, can't go on forever. (laughs) How do you really wrap it up? Yeah. Um, So I think one of the most important things that a conference leader or facilitator can do is to plan how the discussion is going to end. And with Journal Club, this is also where you have an opportunity to show your learners that at the end of the day, after all of this uh, academic you know, discussion, ultimately what we have to do is make a decision about how to apply this information to patient care. So planning a discussion question that is something, you know, it can be something as simple as, so will this change your practice? Somebody commit Tell me why, yes or no. So this does two things. Number one, this kind of uh, allows you to signify, okay, uh, it's time to wrap up. Uh, We now need to weave all of these observations into a conclusion. That's one thing. The second thing it allows you to do is to model how to handle uncertainty. And this is um, a really powerful point at which faculty members can you know, show learners how to um, resist the temptation to, um, you know, prematurely close on a conclusion if you just do not feel like uh, the data at hand have answered the question you have. And it's also an opportunity to to think about how good does the evidence need to be in order to affect your decision making. And one of the examples I, I, I bring up very often in discussions like this is a paper I just love from a couple of years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine. This was a paper called the SALT-ED trial. And this was uh, a, a randomized controlled trial that many people will remember. It was testing whether using normal saline or lactated ringers led to a reduction in a composite endpoint that included a bunch of renal bad things. And this was actually a negative study. The The primary outcome showed no difference. And actually, I should probably look this up as we're talking about this, because as I'm talking, I, I think it actually was like hospital-free days to day 28 or something. It was some it was some big, important outcome. And the study, the primary outcome was negative, okay? But there was a secondary outcome of the study that was pretty convincingly uh, showed a reduction in uh, major adverse kidney events, including AKI, end-stage renal disease requiring dialysis, et cetera. And that secondary outcome showing a difference really was enough, I think, to, to change the practice of most internal medicine types 
Um, I sort of date the shift in people using mostly normal saline to people using mostly lactated ringers to that paper. And this was a negative study. This was a paper where the primary outcome was negative, but there was a, uh, it was a well-designed study. Uh, there was a compelling secondary outcome, uh, and that was enough to change everyone's practice. So asking people at the end of the day, you know, regardless of whether this trial was quote unquote positive or quote unquote negative, how are you going to use these results? Um, is there enough information here to, to push us over our action threshold of making a change? And then the other thing I'll just say, it's really important to end journal clubs on time. It's easy for me to just, you know, keep going uh, uh, ad nauseum. Uh, but no, uh, it's really important to get people back to their lives and, and patient care. So end on time. People will thank you. End early. People will love it. <laughs> This has been amazing, Rahul. I, I think this is so helpful and just such a, a nice framework to think about moving forward with Journal Club. And I'm actually not part of a Journal Club right now, but this makes me <gasps> want to be. So <laughs> um, I think that's great. Um, any other questions that you had here? Or should we move on to take-home points? No, I think take-home points is perfect. Maybe Rahul, could you give us some of your take-home points from this amazing uh, discussion that we've had so far? Sure. So I think when you are preparing a journal club, the first thing to do is to just think about the audience and the objectives. How are you going to get buy-in from the learners? Okay, this has got to be something that people agree is important and understand that a little bit of legwork is going to be required ahead of time. So number one, setting expectations, getting buy-in. Number two, choosing papers that are relevant to the problems that learners are dealing with and papers that affect decisions that they actually have to make are going to be much more popular and much more uh, impactful than uh, studies addressing things our learners are not making decisions about. Third thing is getting everybody on the same page. What was the basic question the study was trying to answer? How are the comparison groups defined? And what were the major findings? And then the fourth thing, and the what, one thing that I think is, is one of the hardest things to learn, is the job of the facilitator is to guide participants through a discussion, identifying sources of chance and bias, and asking them to stretch and think about in which direction are these things going to push the results, towards no difference or towards an association. And then at the end of the day, wrapping up your discussion with, okay, based on all this, how are we going to use this information to better take care of patients? Awesome. Some of one thing that Erin and I like to do as part of the curbsiders teach is just share kind of a take home pearl that we are going to bring it into our own practice as we move forward that uh, at the end of conversations. And so one that really struck me was, as I said, I'm not actively part of a journal club right now, um, but I, I would hope to be at some point with all these new skills. But I think most journal clubs that I have ever participated in, it seemed like someone chose an article and then we all just showed up. And what you have really shown me, Rahul, is that to make this successful, there's a lot of prep behind the scenes. And I think that's the case for really any small group facilitation. And so, of course, it makes sense for journal club as well. But um, I just love how you laid that out, just very clear steps that the facilitator should prepare ahead of time. And, you know, I could see it taking an hour. It doesn't have to take terribly long, but it could make the journal club just be so much more valuable for everyone involved. So I think really focusing on that time in advance in preparation to make things go as successfully as possible. I agree, Molly. I think one thing that I've always loved about journal clubs is like that last question of will this change your management? It, it always has really been the moment where we kind of wrap it up and just really 
put together everything we've talked about. And I love the way today you talked about kind of resisting the temptation to prematurely close, to really have people model uncertainty and talk about, well, let's ask ourselves, did this push us towards underestimating the effect or overestimating the effect and really putting our nickel down in some ways, which I kind of, I feel we don't do enough to really get people to um, stimulate that type of um, discussion. It almost reminds me, like you were talking about weaving a narrative, it almost reminds me about uh, like the assessment and plan. You know, the the stuff we've talked about before is our HNP, the labs, the imaging, and then here comes our assessment and plan. What next? You know, what? how do we do this? And I really love that modeling that there's also uncertainty there too. And so I will bring that with me to my next journal club discussion. Great. Anything else that you want to plug, Rahul? I don't think so. I should have thought before. I, I was so That's happy okay. to have my one pick of the week. And so I put all my eggs <laughs> in that basket. Oh, actually, no, I do have another thing. Okay. So there is, uh, so in, in the, um, it, it, going in the vein of, of plugging other podcasts, there's another great new podcast on the block. And it is, um, if people have read, uh, Freakonomics, you remember that book from a couple of years ago? Um, th- there's a, a, a Freakonomics podcast now, um, that is, um, uh, I think it's called Freakonomics MD. Uh, and so this is kind of uh, a behavioral economics approach to uh, medicine and sort of asking questions that could be answered with natural experiments. It's a really cool type of study design, a really cool type of, of research. And uh, yeah, the podcast is called Freakonomics MD, and it's uh, hosted by uh, Dr. Bapu Jaina, who's a, a fantastic uh, health services researcher. So I highly recommend people check it out. Awesome. Well, this has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. We're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. Special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music and to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And a reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoyblein. And I'm Dr. Ira Krzyzanowska. Thank you for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment. You want to say goodnight, Rahul? <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sorry. That's I'm amazing. I'm like I'm like Ron Burgundy and Anchorman. I'm like reading what is there. What's There's my line? Nothing for me. And I've been Dr. Rahul Ganatra. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been great. Bye.